Heavenly Father, we come before you so grateful for all the blessings that you have poured out upon us. We're thankful for the change in weather, the reminder of the changing of seasons that we're so close to Advent, celebrating the arrival of your Son. We ask that you would continue to remind us through nature, through people we encounter, of your grace, your mercy, your unconditional love. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Michelle McKeska, for those who don't know. Mike is actually preaching at another church this morning. Um, and so this is going to look a little bit different. The good news is, is that I will inevitably preach shorter. Um, and I can say that this is recorded, so Mike's going to hear this. Um, so we have, for those that don't know, we've been going through the adoption process. Um, and so part of that process are two home studies, which are essentially a six-hour interview. Now, I have been through job interviews, but nothing compared to a six-hour personal interview. And we had to do this two times. Uh, so when the social worker comes and into our home and has a seat, and um, we go through the process, and by the end of these six hours, she says, you know, usually whenever I am with couples and I'm asking these questions, um, I usually have to draw out a little bit more from the husbands. They usually just give me, they usually just give me like a one or two word. Y'all already know where I'm going with this. A one or two word response, um, and I inevitably have to ask for more. But you guys have a little bit of a role reversal going on here. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty normal. So again, you know, my philosophy is why use five words when two words will do, right? Um, so this is good news for you when I am crafting a sermon, okay? That's all that to say. Um, I don't know if there's a game. Is there a game? I don't even know. Is this like a really dumb question? Is like, okay, well, there we go. So um, Chris Bowers' wife, Jen, uh, has threatened to get me a T-shirt that says, yay sports, um, because that's about accurate. Anyway, so uh, I want to begin this morning's sermon by sharing a little bit of uh, an experience that I've had, which is uh, waking up from anesthesia. So I don't know if any of you guys have had any major surgeries um, or have been put under in this way, uh, but it's a very unique experience. Um, and I have experienced this now three times. I wish that I was less familiar with this process, um, but I had heart surgery uh, about a year and a half ago. It seems shorter. It seems like it was just yesterday, and we were all here worshiping together the night before I was about to um, experience this, but um, it's been a year and a half. And uh, so one of the things that happens um, through the anesthesia process is that they wake you up very slowly. Um, they, they ease you into it because they don't exactly know how you're going to react. Okay. Um, and so I am waking up from the surgery. I've just had major heart surgery. I, I'm not feeling a lot of things because I am heavily medicated at this point. Um, but the first thing that I notice 
is that I can't see anything because I don't have my glasses. So it's just I, my eyes are opened and they're basically useless, these eyes of mine, without my glasses. And so I, I can't see anything. And I try to move and I can't. I'm just moving my hand because I've been restrained. Okay, so I don't know if you've ever like woken up and all of a sudden you can't really remember where you are and you can't really move either. And then you can't see. It's like a serious fight or flight response. Right. There's there's a reason why they restrain you for anesthesia, because a lot of people, when they wake up, um, in my words, they hulk out. Um, They start freaking out and pulling out. IVs and tubes, and they can seriously injure themselves. Um, I do not react this way. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but in a dangerous situation, I kind of am looking around like, huh? So I don't think I would have done too well or fared too well on a deserted island or something. But anyway, so I'm, I'm waking up, and I just am confused as to why I can't move my hands. And then the very next thing that they do is they take out your breathing tube because you have been, you've been under. You're, you're not really breathing on your own. Um, and so they wait. They wait for you to wake up and see that you're breathing for them to take out the breathing tube. Now, again, I'm heavily medicated, but I'm aware enough to feel a giant tube being pulled out, right, of my throat. This is... Um, not a very pleasant feeling. And so the only thing that I can think about, not about the heart surgery, not about who's in the room. Apparently there were a lot of people in the room. I didn't know what was going on. Um, all I wanted was a glass of water. That was it. This was my only thought. My only, like, it's like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? If you don't have your basic need met, you cannot think about anything else. And this was all I wanted. And if you know anything about anesthesia or major surgery, you know what their response was. Could I have it? No. No, I could not have water right now. Because another side effect of anesthesia is that you're very nauseous, which is very true. Every time I've woken up, I, I want to vomit and I want a drink of water. And I can't have either of those things, okay? Um, so what they do... And I'm not dehydrated, okay? They're not treating me cruelly. They're pumping me with IVs and fluids. But that does not help my present condition of thirst. Um, and so what they, what they do is they are able to give me ice chips, okay? As many ice chips as I want, as long as I request it. And you can talk to Zach. This is what he remembers from the first, like, hours. I, I felt like I was in the ICU forever, but I think it was only, like, 12 hours. But for that extended amount of time, it was a constant, can I get some ice cubes, ice cubes, ice cubes, ice cubes. That was all I wanted. And the first time that I consumed this ice chip, it felt like it was the nectar of the gods. I mean, the, the thirst was quenched for just a second, for just a moment. And I just wanted more. Just telling you this story, I need to take a break. Because I am remembering this thirst, and it's making me thirsty. Very traumatic. Anyway, not the heart surgery, right? Not the major. Obviously, all that stuff was. 
Um, but I tell you all this, I swear I have a point. Um, it's not just to commiserate and tell you how miserable I was those first few hours. What I started to reflect on was how dependent we are as creatures, how we as human beings, we hunger and we thirst. It's what we do. And if we don't get that satisfaction of water or food, we're done. That's all it takes to make me a complete useless person who can only think about ice chips for 12 hours is to deny that, right? So we are these physical dependent creatures. We hunger and we thirst. And I want to put forward this morning that you and I are also spiritual creatures. Now, I'm not getting new agey on you here or Gnostic, okay? What I am saying is that you and I We hunger and we thirst for meaning, for purpose, for value in the same way that we hunger and thirst for food and water. We feel like we are never satisfied. We're constantly looking for something to fill us, to make us feel whole. Um, And I can use myself as an example here. Um, So... Again, I've been saying we've been going on this process of adoption. And so for those that don't know, I used to teach. I taught at a high school level uh, for five years, and I loved it. I enjoyed it immensely. Um, But because of this change in our life, uh, and because we don't really know the timeline, any time we could get a call saying, here's your baby, and then we're parents which is a terrifying thing for me. Um, But, you know, I hear that actual, you know, parenthood is just terrifying anyway, so I better get used to it. Um, But I knew that this time of transition was going to be difficult for me because I decided not to return to teaching. And so, just to give you a little window into my neuroses, um, things to know about me, I'm a perfectionist. I'm an achiever. I attach most of my identity, my value, my meaning, in what I do or what I can accomplish. So to be unemployed while not having a child, um, it, I knew it was going to have its effect on me. It was going to make me feel like my life was somehow less meaningful, like I had lost my sense of identity, my purpose, my value. And I'm going to venture out on a limb here. Um, and predict that many of us need similar things in order to feel like our lives have meaning, have purpose. We are, after all, spiritual creatures. So the question I want to ask us this morning is, what do we think will satisfy our hunger for meaning? And how does this actually prevent us from encountering God? So with that, if you have your Bibles there, um, our Bibles should be Bibles in front of you. Um, we are going to be in a uh, an interesting place this morning. We're going to open up to 2 Kings chapter 5, take a little break from our Sermon on the Mount series. Michael, bring us back to that next week. But I wanted to focus on a particular story um, that maybe you don't hear about too much. You know, the kings don't get a lot of radio play. Uh, There's a lot of weird names, weird places, 
Some people get eaten by bears. Um, It's not your typical sermon material, though I have heard a sermon on the eating bears thing. It was not good. Um, But, you know, so apart from a few pretty crazy stories, the kings are a little boring. And I can say that because I was a Bible teacher. So I am allowed to say that certain parts of the Bible are not as exciting as others. Um, But essentially the structure of the kings is that it lists a king who then does something bad. It says he does what is evil in the sight of God. And then God removes that king and replaces him with another who, rinse and repeat, does the same thing. Okay? The whole lesson, I can sum up all the kings for you. Most of them are bad. Maybe one or two of them were actually pretty good. Okay? They're not able to follow the ways of Yahweh. But in 2 Kings 5, we're actually not going to be looking at a king at all. We're going to look at a Syrian general whose name is Naaman. And we're going to start in verse 1. Now, I have a different uh, translation this morning just because I like it a little bit better for this story. Um, But it should follow from yours as well. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Syria replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. All right, our king of Israel does not disappoint. He is not great. Um, So to give you a little bit of background here of what is going on, we have this man Naaman who's from Syria. And as you can guess, Syria and Israel don't like each other very much. They are competing nations. In fact, Naaman has gone on raids, right? And he has actually taken an Israelite girl captive and forced her into slavery, forced her to be his servant. So when the king of Syria then sends a letter to the king of Israel saying, hey, I would like to send you my best general so that you can cure him. This would understandably make the Israelite king a little bit nervous. Sure, I'm just going to open up my lands to you and let you bring in your best general who's defeating my armies, and I'll, I'll let him come. We'll, we'll take care of this. So he obviously thinks this is a trap first, or best case scenario, this could be a huge diplomatic crisis. What happens if this guy comes to be cured and we can't cure him? What will it say about our God? What will it say about our nation then? So the king tears his robes, an expression of sorrow, 
Uh, and thankfully, there are some more helpful characters in the story who respond to the letter instead. Starting with our prophet, we're going to keep reading in verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come to me and stand out and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. He had a tantrum. Okay, so this scene is just hilarious. First of all, you have this great general who is used to getting the royal treatment. If you are the nation's top general, you know full well that you're the reason why the nation is stable. You've won all the wars. You've expanded the territory. So you have come to expect the royal treatment as well as the king. So naturally, when Naaman goes out to this prophet, he brings all of his horses and all of his chariots because he wants there to be little doubt in Elisha's mind, I'm a big deal, right? This isn't just any Joe Schmo who's coming to see you. This is the great general here. And Elisha doesn't even pay him a visit. He sends his messenger, sends an errand boy, sends his assistant. Go give him the instructions. This is a huge insult to Naaman. Because he had some expectations about what a proper healing looked like. It had to be done a certain way. He had to wave his hands right over the spot. He had to call on the name of the Lord. Most importantly, the ritual would communicate the superior status of both the healer and the one to be healed. Surely something as miraculous as healing from a god cannot involve something so ordinary as bathing in a river. And Naaman almost misses it. But thankfully, we have more helpful people in the story. Verse 13. So Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like a little child. So the story ends by Naaman being called out once again by his servants, who are, by the way, the only helpful people in this story, right? You have the little girl who, for some reason, though she has been captured by Naaman, decides, I'm going to help you out. Clearly, you need some help, and my prophet can provide that to you. Then, Elisha doesn't even show up on the scene. He sends his servant with the instructions. And then Naaman's servants once again have to convince him, hey, I think you might want to do what this guy had said. Right? They even call him out. They say, if he, he had told you to do some great thing, 
that would have made sense to you, you would have done it. But because you have to wash in an albeit kind of dirty river, right? You don't want to receive this healing. Now, the Jordan River was very special to the Israelites. It had a lot of meaning to them. They crossed the Jordan River to enter into the promised land. But this has no meaning to an outsider. He doesn't know the story. And even so, this seems like a do-it-yourself kind of healing, right? You don't do the DIY when you want the professional, when you can afford the professional, right? Um, So again, I think what we're seeing here is that there's more to the story than a great general being healed of leprosy. I think Naaman had to be healed of more than that. He needed to be healed of his need for status. He was healed of thinking he knew the right way to be healed. I know the right way. He had to let go of his expectations in order to receive the healing. And I think that we can draw parallels in our own lives when we draw near to God. It forces us to lose any sense of self-importance or elitism. There is no varsity in JV. Jesus in the Gospels says that you have to enter the kingdom like a little child. And again, I think of how Naaman is described as being healed. I think it's intentional there in the mind of the author. He started out this great general, but ended up like a little child in the waters of baptism. And, you know, the thing about children, I've been thinking about children a lot more recently, um, is that they can't really offer much in terms of society. Now, before I offend every parent in the room, I understand, right, that children are incredibly valuable, that all life has meaning. But they can't contribute in the ways that we normally measure what contributing to society is, right? They can't pay taxes, Okay, they can't contribute to the workforce. Um, I don't know that I would pick them to be on my dodgeball team, okay, even though probably some of them could terribly beat me in dodgeball. Uh, We won't talk about that. Uh, But they are completely dependent. And we forget that we are also just as dependent, right? Growing up, we forget our neediness, But man, nothing like a heart surgery where you're completely dependent on the actions of others. That will remind you of your dependence in a heartbeat. And yet, being like a child is the way to enter the kingdom. It's the way to encounter God. God's kingdom arrives through the birth of an ordinary child who grew up in the outskirts of Israel. And it's interesting to note here that when Jesus had started to gain a following, people would send word to the chief priest in Jerusalem. They said, hey, there's this guy who's causing some trouble. He's gaining these you know, crowds. Maybe we need to check in on this guy. And the chief priest says, where is he from? He says, well, he's from Nazareth. Really? What good can come out of Nazareth? This is what he says. And he completely dismissed Jesus. Like, no, no, no. Great people don't come from there. That's like the outskirts. Um, 
So again, right, they miss it. And just as Naaman wants a special healing, we see the same desire in the disciples. They want Jesus to show up in a grand way. They're expecting him any day to use his miracles to topple Rome. And they almost miss, right, that God himself is right in front of them because it didn't look like what they expected. In the reading that we had just before the sermon, it's from Mark 10, and you have this famous request of James and John, which starts off, by the way, with such a bold move. I mean, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Which, if you're already thinking that this guy is the Messiah, like he's going to be the king of all Israel, that's a bold way to start. Okay? So they say, we want you to do whatever we ask. And their request is that they want the top two seats. We want to be on your right, and we want to be on your left. And then the other ten disciples overhear it because they weren't wise enough to actually have this as a private conversation about, hey, we think we're better than everybody else, so give us the top two seats. They do this in front of the other ten. Okay, so already bad decisions are being made here in this conversation. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking You don't understand. And then he starts talking about a cup that he's going to drink, a baptism that he's going to undergo. And he tries to explain that arriving in his glory is not going to look like sitting on a throne. It's going to look like a humiliating, sacrificial death reserved for society's worst criminals And he's going to be completely alone. They will all abandon him. He ends by telling them that he didn't come to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Following Jesus means joining him in this mission of service. It puts to death our need to achieve. Wrapping our identity and what we do, what we accomplish, which, as I've said already, is one of the hardest things I've had to learn. The kingdom comes near in the ordinary, the mundane, the sacrificial. And it's always been like that. Jesus didn't bring this new thing. It's always worked this way. I can't help but think of our current sermon series and the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus begins his sermon by pronouncing blessing on those the world deems unremarkable. And again, I think this is one of the reasons why the gospel is just so scandalous. God decides to use ordinary people to accomplish his mission. And I mean, this just seems to be the story of the entire Bible. When you start studying, when you do a character study of all the greats in the Bible, you quickly come to learn one thing. They're all screw-ups. Every single one of them. And yet, God uses them. And this seems to be how God likes to do things. He has a plan and then decides to let us run with it. We inevitably screw it up. And then he fixes it. And then he says, okay, let's try it again. And I'm like, no, why don't, this isn't a good idea. And even then, when he sends his own son, he's like, okay, finally, you figured that out. You sent your son, we're good. And then Jesus says, all right, great commission, go do it. Whoa, 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 whoa. this doesn't seem to be the best idea. 
But this is how God's kingdom works. A Lutheran pastor in Colorado, her name's Nadia Boltz Weber, she says that the greatest spiritual discipline is just showing up. When we remove our expectations and show up in our lives, in our communities, we are putting our faith into action in a way that knows it is God who's doing the work. Letting ourself take the back seat. One of the ways I feel like I'm able to practice this every week is through communion. Every week we come to the table and we experience God on his terms. Through surprisingly ordinary objects, bread and wine. Symbols that represent Jesus' body and blood. His human life lived as a servant to the world. Through his ordinary broken body, we have received healing salvation, and union with God. In the simple action of tearing the bread and dipping it into the cup, as we hear Mike say almost every week, we remember and we celebrate the one who was crucified and rose again on our behalf. So this week, I want to encourage you to do one thing for me. Take some time to introspect. Ask God to reveal areas in your life where you need to grow where you have maybe tried to satisfy your desire for meaning with the wrong thing. Or maybe it's something else, but ask for God to reveal your blind spots. What is causing you to miss out on experiencing God? It might be pretty unexpected and ordinary. Let's pray.